Our time together this morning has already been such a blessed occurrence, a matter of encouragement and exhortation, a time, in fact, to motivate and compel us to move in those directions that are spiritual and godly, and above all things else, in, in, in keeping with the teaching of the Word of God. As we're thankful for this opportunity to assemble on the first day of the week, we have come to a, that part in our service in which we will consider a section, or in fact, a few sections of the Word of God. I've entitled the lesson, Civil Disobedience, and it's a part two of two. Last Sunday morning, we considered a lesson that was entitled, Christians and Civil Government. And this lesson is intended to be a continuation of that, with a special consideration of civil disobedience. Notice on that slide with me, if you would, just a topical reminder of some of those things we saw last Sunday. And we appreciated, first of all, that in regard to civil government, the Bible has much to say about that. And one of the first appreciations was this, "...let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God." Romans 13, 1. Later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, we're reminded, "...submit every one of you to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake." And we appreciated then that it is the will of the God of heaven that Christians submit to civil authorities. We'll develop that a little more thoroughly today. But another lesson that we appreciated was our God is involved in civil government in that He approves its right to exist. And not only that, there have been many occasions throughout history in which He has providentially used it to bring about His will. Now at the bottom of that slide, it brings us to the thought of the lesson today. What about those occasions when a person purposefully chooses to disobey the government? Purposefully makes a determined appreciation that I will not do what the government is commanding me to do. Well, the word that's used to describe that is civil disobedience. And thus, by definition, it is a refusal to obey governmental demands or commands. Today, why don't you and I give some study to that, appreciating perhaps in particular what's involved in willfully choosing to not do what the government says to do. We each know much has been said through Bible times and circumstances in which individuals have found themselves in that very predicament. What happened to them? We will look at a number of circumstances today. I've tried to group the teachings together into five headings, and so let's look at the first one. Observation, if you please, number one. It is entirely possible that civil government may be opposed to the things of Christianity. In other words, it may well be the case that a government may be in power which is not favorable to the matters concerning pursuit and service of God. Now, that not only was true at times in the Old Testament, but it certainly, you and I know well from the book of Acts, has been true on occasion in the New Testament. And so, this opening point is this one. There have been a number of occasions, and I simply called to your attention a few in the Old Testament. What about the circumstances concerning Assyria? When the children of Israel were laboring as they were, were the dictates and mandates of the Assyrian government kind to the service of God? What about the Babylonian government? What about the Moabites and the others in the book of Judges? The point was easily made. 
there were circumstances in which these who sought to serve God were influenced by and were under the control of authorities which were not favorable to the things of serving God. May I submit to you, that certainly could happen again. None of us know what time shall bring if God shall allow the United States and the earth to stand another half century or so. What about matters in this country? Could there again be a return to a circumstance in which the governmental authorities were not disposed to be appreciative much of Christianity? It certainly could happen. In fact, there appears to be a movement in which many of the things our current past government has sought to endorse and condone and even approve, we know are not consistent with the teaching of the Bible. Notice a few particular examples. In John 16, verse number 2, Jesus, in speaking to His apostles, directly told them the time is going to come when those who think they'll be doing service to God when they put you to death. Now, Jesus told His apostles that. How would you have heard that? Those who would be so strong in their persecution of you, they'll think they'll be doing service to God, but in fact, they're going to be, in fact, putting you to death. Furthermore, what about 2 Timothy 3.12? The burden and the matter realistically stated there of persecution. Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Some of that may well come from the governing authorities. I list all of those things for your consideration as you look at a few specific examples in the book of Acts. Remember, here was a circumstance in the New Testament era. In Acts chapter 16, on the second missionary tour, Paul and his companions came to that city known as Philippi. It was a city that was a Roman colony. In other words, it was a central place in which the Roman government was strongly present. There was a damsel girl, and Paul cast a spirit of divination out of her. And you might remember the difficulty that came his way and those of his companions as a result of that. When there were those who saw that their pocketbooks were being hurt by the fact that now we can indulge in idolatry and sell shrines and other things, they hauled Paul and Silas before the magistrates, and the magistrates had them whipped and beaten and cast into prison. Now what had Paul and Silas done? They'd committed no crime. They had not, in fact, been a base of insurrection. All they had done was preach Jesus Christ. All they had done was carry out the thoroughness and that which was the will of the great God of heaven. And the authorities had them beat and thrown in prison. Makes one think, doesn't it? You'll notice in light of that, Jesus made this powerful statement in John 19, 11. The scene was a very compelling one. It was a very tense one too. By this point, Jesus had already been hauled before the authorities. He'd been arrested in that Garden of Gethsemane. And you may remember that in the hours that followed, He had appeared in various mockeries of trials before individuals, and now Pilate was the one before whom He was standing. The high-ranking Roman official. And of course, Pilate admitted to Jesus, I've got power to set you free. Jesus, in a very dramatic way, said to him, You would have no power at all unless the God of heaven gave it to you. His right to rule, though he was a Roman governor, his right to rule and the authority vested in him was bequeathed to him by virtue of the God of heaven. 
Jesus understood then. Here was an official who didn't approve of what Jesus was standing before him of. And yet he made the statement, you could have no authority or power at all unless heaven gave it to you. When you and I reflect upon truths like that again, it may well be that Christians may find themselves serving in a land wherein the government's not favorable to Christianity. And so at the bottom of that slide, that now brings us back to think of what we learned last Sunday. You'll notice that the Bible nowhere asserts that we are to obey civil government only as long as it's convenient for us or only as long as things are nicely arranged for us. Remember, those statements we made in 1 Peter 2.13, as well as Romans 13.1, those were made when those Christians were serving beneath a very persecuting Roman authority. Nero was the Caesar. Nero had many things hurtful in terms of Christianity. He hated it. And yet God still said, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. So one of the things you and I can notice, and may we always be prepared for it, even if the government isn't kind to Christians, we still have to obey them if we're to please God. Now that does lead us to ask, are there occasions when we must disobey them? Next part of our lesson. As you turn the slide with me or consider with me the next point, this one's going to build up to a conclusion in just a moment, but I thought it wise to at least highlight this as point two. I've entitled it Permission and Command. Again, we're studying about circumstances in which the civil government, the authorities, are in a position that is not favorable to Christianity. Well, consider this with me. It is entirely possible that a government might be in a position, as I've stated it there, to allow disobedience to God. In other words, they don't command it, but they allow it. And of course, you and I know that we have suffered beneath that here in our country much. We currently have a government that is openly endorsing of abortion, but God hates it, and Christians hate it. And yet our government is fully supporting of it. Now, the government doesn't command that abortion happen, but it says if a woman wants it, you've got to do it. Notice the government's giving its permission for it. It's condoning it. But it hasn't reached yet the point to command that it be done. But that's the second point. It's entirely possible a government might command disobedience to God. Seems to me one powerful example is in Exodus chapter 1. You recall the scene? The children of Israel at that time were in Egypt. They haven't yet been released. The plagues haven't yet come. And on that circumstance, you remember that the children of Israel had grown in number to the point the Egyptians were fearful of them. The Hebrew midwives were given a command by the Pharaoh of Egypt. Every time a Hebrew woman is pregnant, if it's a baby boy, you kill it. If it's a girl, you let it live. The Hebrew midwives did not do what the Pharaoh said. They blatantly disobeyed. They allowed those baby boys to live as well. Notice there was a case when the government commanded something that was not in harmony with the keeping of serving God. Killing babies. And yet the Hebrew midwives had the nerve, had the determination to not do what the king commanded. 
all of this is begging you and I to think too about this matter of civil disobedience. Consider another example. I mentioned this one to you because it is a part of the New Testament on so many occasions. There is one Lord. As those who believe in the God of heaven and those who believe with fullness His Word, we understand from Ephesians 4 verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. That oneness is so strong and so directive. And yet, you and I know the pluralism of our society when it comes to religion is often something that can appear in the government in which all religions are equally endorsed. In fact, a part of our Constitution says, the government shall make no regulation endorsing any one religion over another one. What if that were taken to the next step wherein the government commanded, absolutely commanded every person to be openly honoring of every religion? We'll have more to say about that, by the way, in just a moment as we look at a New Testament example. But I thought on this occasion... You and I should already put before us the truth with which we must always be guided. It is that passage read as our lesson text this morning. In Acts chapter 5 verse 29, Peter by inspiration made this statement. We ought to obey God rather than men. Here was a setting, here was a scene in which Peter and John had been directly commanded by the authorities not to preach Jesus not to preach His resurrection, and not to put that name, namely Jesus, in Jerusalem. And yet, they had been hauled in and arrested, and then upon their release, they went right back and preached again. Now, upon being called in the second time, Peter said, We ought to obey God rather than men. In essence, Peter said, God tells us to preach Jesus and you tell us not to and we're going to do what God says. Now at the bottom of that slide, I ask you to think about the actual meaning of some of the words contained in that passage. The King James again reads that we ought to obey God. Well, that almost makes it sound like it's left to my choice. I can choose to or I can choose not to, but that really doesn't do the original language much justice. And so I've put at the bottom two other renditions. First of all, we must obey God rather than men. Another translation, following again the original text, it is necessary to obey God rather than men. One of those is taken from the American Standard, the other again from another well-known ESV. As you and I think again about it, it is not left to our option. We must, if we're to please God. When the laws of God are contradicted by the... By the dictates of man, we must obey God. Now to say that is one thing and to imagine circumstances in which that's carried out are quite different. And so that brings us to point number three. As you consider this one with me, it may sound hard at times. And all of us need to though be reminded of what it is that the Bible puts before us on occasions like this. Again, our question is, what about breaking the civil law? Those circumstances when it would be the will of God that I break one or more laws of the civil government. Let's study about that for the next few moments. Now we've learned already in general, Christians are law-abiding people. But here's the exception. 
and we just noticed it a moment ago, we must obey God always rather than men. And so the opening slide, the opening comment on that slide, when it is the case that the laws of the government command a disobedience to the things of God, a Christian has to obey God every time, every time, without exception, even if it costs you your life, even if it's the point of death. That's something difficult to wrestle with in some ways, isn't it? Because, of course, we appreciate life on the earth. We appreciate the blessings and potential and possibility of life in the flesh. But what does the Bible teach about this? Again, with your Bible handy, let's look at a few examples. First of all, the scene taken one from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 3. As you rehearse the scene of that chapter in your mind, what was it that took place on that occasion? Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian ruler. Consider this with me. Nebuchadnezzar in many ways was not a terribly religious man. He didn't really care what God you worshipped as long as you honored the God he himself worshipped. And so the fact was he erected a tremendous image there on the plain of Dura. And he said, every time you hear the music, you've got to fall down and worship it. Now again, he didn't care how many other gods you may have worshipped, but whenever you heard the music, you had to at least honor his God. And so the time came, the music played. And three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as their Babylonian names were presented, they didn't bow down. Can you imagine a sea of people? And three down on not bowing down, they, they would have stood out rather noticeably. And they didn't bow down. Well, needless to say, the officials or those individuals nearby brought word to the king. Guess what, king? Three have not bowed down. These three Babylon or the, these three Chaldeans, these who have been captured from a foreign land, these Israelites. And of course, in the matter that followed, the king called them in and said, you were given command to bow, and you didn't. Now, you know that there's a fiery furnace nearby, so why don't we do this? I'll give you another chance. I'm going to play the music again, and when you hear it, bow down. Everything will be okay. I'll let it slide this time. What was it that developed? What was it that happened? The music played before it did. You remember what they said? They said, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, O king. We will not serve your gods. We're not going to bow down. You can cast us in the fiery furnace if you like. Be it known to you, our God can save us. But if He chooses not to, we're still not going to bow down. Think of the courage that took. Think of the determination that took. Think of the absolute dedication to the truth of the God you serve. Throw me in the fiery furnace if you must, but I am not bowing down. Doesn't it cause almost a chill to come over you when you think about that much determination in someone who loves the Lord like that? These three Hebrew children, we remember how it turned out. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. God didn't miraculously deliver them before that moment, but upon being thrown in the furnace, He did deliver them. 
Isn't it amazing to think about their commitment to the God whom they loved? Would that same commitment characterize you and me? In fact, as you look up on that slide, may I submit to you that same scenario is what it would appear to me more likely, at least in the present day, that could come your way and mine. You and I have enjoyed the precious blessing now for all of our life of living in a land who allowed us to serve and to worship God without any fear of difficulty, persecution, or harassment. That again may not always be the case. What if our government were to reach the point when pluralistic matters were so openly demanded that anything to the contrary was frowned upon and even hauled in for questioning or perhaps even additional matters? In Revelation chapter 13, it seems as if there's a very powerful presentation that reminds us of what could happen. That one involved the days of the Roman government. Again, by that time, Jesus had already come and He'd been dead for a number of decades. But a government was in power, the government in Rome. That government was in fact such that, remember, you were free to worship anybody you wanted, but you had to honor Caesar as king. And therefore, there were statues and busts erected all over the Roman Empire. And when you saw it, you had to fall down and worship it. But I'm a Christian. I can't fall and bow before a bust of the Roman Caesar. Well, if you don't, you'll die. If you don't, you won't be allowed into the marketplace to buy food to feed your wife and children. So I guess... I'll fall down and worship it just so I can feed my family. That's a sin. If you do that, you can't go to heaven. It's exactly the same parallel to those circumstances we just studied about in Daniel. You can imagine the scene. And apparently there are many records of things like this happening. A family walking along one of the streets of one major city in the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers, of course, walking about as well, and they see that family at a distance. And so the Roman soldier simply, Sir, may we ask you a question? May we in fact talk with you a moment? And the gentleman talks to his wife, Wait here a moment, I'll be right back. He comes over and the soldiers say, We only want to ask one thing of you. We want to hear you say something. Would you repeat, Caesar is Lord? That's all you got to say. And suddenly the countenance of the man falls. He knows as a Christian he can't say that. There's only one Lord, and it's Jesus Christ. And yet if he doesn't say it, they'll kill him, and the government will approve it. But if he does say it, he will in fact be sinning against God. What does he do? His heart starts pounding. He looks back at a distance to his wife and children. He says, Jesus Christ is Lord. Perhaps the next day he's fed to the lions. It's something to think about, isn't it? In a land that's given to pluralistic consideration, even in regard to serving God, our commitment must be we ought to, we must obey God rather than men. You'll notice on that slide, as you come near the bottom, this would be a perfect time to perhaps imagine any number of thoughts that could cross our mind. 
Think about the three Hebrew children again in Daniel chapter 3. When the king said, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. It would have been easy to perhaps rationalize that behavior. Well, I'll bow down at least in the exterior, but at least in my mind I won't be, and so it'll be all right. They didn't believe that for a minute. Not only that, perhaps they could have justified it like this. Well, we'll bow down for the realization that only in this way can I make association with the people in this land. And maybe I can finally convert them to the truth. They didn't believe that either. When your life's on the line, it'd be easy to rationalize any number of behaviors. And yet they said, be it known, King, we're not bowing down. Do you and I have that much belief? Is our faith that strong? Is our commitment directed like that? In Revelation chapter 13, that chapter ends again reminding us that 666, that mark of the beast, that is a description again of those who succumb to the temptation and realities of the flesh of this world as opposed, of course, to the fully devoted service of God. May I submit to you, civil disobedience is a challenging thing to consider, isn't it? But when the law of God is opposed by the law of the land, we've got to obey God every time. Let's close that slide then by noting there are several additional examples in the Bible of those who purposefully chose to disobey what the law of the land said. May I call to your attention Moses' parents. Again, the particular edict had been given to kill all the baby boys that are Hebrews. And yet, Hebrews 11.23 says, The commandment of the king, Moses' parents disobeyed. So, the king gave a command and Amram and Jochebed said, We're not doing it. And they put that little baby in an ark. And of course, by the great providence of God, Pharaoh's daughter found it. It might well be you could notice another one in Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5. We noticed this earlier, and perhaps it's wise to highlight one additional feature of it. Peter and John, remember a lame man had been healed. That lame man was well known to one and all. And yet that message was one that caused a great stir because the message of the gospel was becoming known far and wide and the authorities didn't like it. And so they commanded Peter and John, don't preach in that name. Now, isn't it interesting? They could have preached any other message they wanted, but they were not permitted by the government at least to preach Jesus Christ and His resurrection. But they did it anyway. And of course, being asked about it, it was Peter who finally affirmed by saying, we must obey God rather than men. May I say that as you and I prepare our thinking along that line, for the circumstances that we might face, let's come to point four. As we study this fourth point, may I say that there seems to be a many passages among those we've studied that also highlights the individual commitment that's ours as we think about civil disobedience. I've mentioned two in particular. It appears that in the Bible, at least, there were circumstances that did call upon individual Christians to make a judgment about something. In a moment, we're going to study a scene in Daniel 6 when that was so, and we'll look at another scene in, from the lips of our Lord Himself. But let's, in fact, set the first one in place. 
in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel had been blessed so much so by God, he had risen to tremendous prominence in the ancient empire of Persia. As he did so, those who were his contemporaries were jealous of him. In fact, they looked upon him and they wanted the kind of prestige that he had. And you recall what they did. They went behind his back and they got the king to sign a decree. You can't offer a prayer to anybody except the Persian deity for 30 days. However, Daniel was in the habit of praying to the God of heaven three times every day with his window open facing Jerusalem. As you, of course, remember how that worked out. Daniel chapter 6 says, Sure enough, after the edict was signed, those who were Daniel's enemies, they had noticed from a distance he's still praying. He still had his window open. He still faced Jerusalem, still three times every day. He hadn't changed a thing that he was doing. And so they brought word to the king. King, you know that gentleman that is so highly regarded by you, he's not obeying you. And he ain't obeying the edict you signed either. And so he brought Daniel in and he asked him about it. In Daniel chapter 6, we all remember what happened. Daniel didn't lie about it. He said, yeah, I've been praying. And the king became sad because he liked Daniel. But he also had to throw him into the den of lions because he broke the law. He broke the law. What would you and I have done? The government has signed a decree. Now, isn't it interesting that at this point, as you reflect on it, nowhere in the law of Moses is there commands you had to pray three times a day facing Jerusalem with your window open. And yet that was Daniel's custom. It was his habit. It was his service to God. And the government was not going to change it. He was that determined and that committed and that faithful in his service to the God of heaven. At that point, that perhaps begs you and I to ask this question. There are a number of things maybe in the New Testament that you and I could ask about. What if our government were to make the decision... You cannot meet on Wednesday at all for religious service. You can meet Sundays if you want, but you can't meet Wednesday. How would we react? Would we look upon that? Well, we can't find any verse anywhere in the New Testament that commands we meet Wednesday. In fact, the word Wednesday is not in there anywhere. Or would we perhaps respond much like Daniel did? Our service to God is such that we in faithfulness will meet, and if the government says that we can't, well, they're just going to have to live with it. It's something to consider, isn't it? Aren't we thankful for examples like Daniel and, yea, others who in fact set before us the courageous determination, among all other things, to put God first? Matthew 6, verse 33. Isn't it true... In the New Testament, we have also a statement by Jesus in Matthew 10, 23. On this occasion, as the limited commission was given, Jesus now did tell them, as you go and preach in various cities, if they won't receive you, you shake the dust off your feet and you go on to the next one. May I ask, as you think about that one, Jesus then did give them the opportunity to consider... They didn't have to stay there. 
in that case, but to move on to the next one. Admittedly, that was before He died on the cross. But doesn't it highlight for us the fact that apparently we would be given some latitude of choice in this. But may I submit at the bottom, surely we would understand some things in service to God are absolutely non-negotiable. We would have to say no if the government told us to do certain things or not to do certain things. Point number five and the last one of the lesson will ask us to think about civil disobedience from yet one additional viewpoint. One additional consideration. I suppose one natural thought that might cross our mind is as we then give thought to civil disobedience, to what extent might it go? Notice our emphasis so far has been individual service. When God's Word commands one thing and the civil government commands something else, I as an individual will always, always choose to follow God, even if it means breaking the law of the land. But what about organizing a revolt? Organizing an insurrection? Leading a protest in regard to hoping to topple or overthrow the government? Could I do that as a Christian? Could we as Christians do that? It would seem the answer is no. Consider this last slide. Whenever you and I have read in our statements about the things of civil government in the Bible, again, it was, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Or again, in 1 Peter 2.13, let every soul submit unto the governors and to the kings. It would seem then that there is nothing in the Bible about leading a protest or leading an insurrection or in fact trying to topple the government. But as individuals, we at least in this land have been given the God-given opportunity to cast a ballot and make determination as to who serves in governmental positions. As you and I use that wisely, as we employ that capability and privilege that's given to us, we put ourselves in line of a number of Bible people who also served and in fact strove to do that which was good and right that way. Isn't it true that Joseph rose to second in command of the Pharaoh? He worked in the government. Or what about Daniel? And what about Nehemiah? They both worked in the government. But you'll notice nowhere do we find that they led revolts or insurrections. And so, as you notice near the bottom of that slide, Peter on one occasion in 1 Peter 2, verses 19 and 20, even asserts that when it comes to that, you as a Christian must even suffer and endure what's wrong rather than to revolt against the government. May you and I be thankful many, many times for a government that allows us to worship the way we do. For a government that at least to this point has been one that allows us to serve Jesus Christ our Lord and to do so with freedom and to do so with commitment. But if that day were to ever come when the laws of the land are so counter-distinctive to the laws of God, we will always as faithful Christians obey God and will break the law on those occasions. As you close that slide with me, 
Perhaps Nehemiah serves as one final example in Nehemiah 1, verses 1 and following, when he, you may recall, approached the king of that day, and actually through that opportunity much good was done to restoring the walls of Jerusalem. May you and I approach God in prayer frequently, praying for kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. As you and I pray those kinds of prayers, may God respond by blessing us that way. Let's close our lesson then. This summary slide is my attempt to do that. As you look at it, it is a summary of not only today's lesson, but last week as well as you pre briefly appreciate some of what we've seen. Civil governments authorized by God to exist. Its authority and power, again, fully consistent in its right to exist with Him. Sometimes God orchestrates and uses that civil authority in a way to bring His will about. And it is His will that Christians submit to it. Up until the time that God's law is contradicted by it. And then, and then we ought to, we must obey God rather than men. We've seen then that matter today. There might be one or more in this audience who is not a faithful member of the body of Christ. Maybe you've never become a Christian, and if so, realize the greatest king of all died at Calvary for you. He died, giving his life, shedding his blood, purchasing the church thereby, so that you and I, my friend, could have the opportunity of eternal life. You must believe in him with all of your heart. You must repent of your sins, confess His name as a Son of God, and then submissively allow yourself to be immersed in water, baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in that way today, we'd, we'd be delighted to do that. But if you have become a Christian, but maybe you have forgotten the privileges that were yours, you've begun to live in a way that's brought reproach upon what Jesus stood for, don't continue in that vein. Don't continue in that walk for that, that's, that means you're lost. Just like the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 verses 4 and 5, you've left your first love. Why not rush back to His side? We pray to God on your behalf. Upon your repentance and confession, God will forgive it. The invitation's extended, and we would invite you to come at this moment while together we stand and while we sing.